This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The year's most memorable interviews and listener calls on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back for 2020 with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the best of Fight Back 2020 from the year that was, the year of the COVID-19 pandemic. Who would have thought back at the beginning of the year, while we were hearing rumblings of a potentially deadly virus in China, that it would grip the entire world and completely change the way we live That has been our reality since March, when states of emergency were declared, lockdowns began, and we were told to stay home. The virus ebbed and flowed throughout the year, giving us a bit of a reprieve during the summer. But it was lurking and waiting to pounce again. And did it ever, as daily case count numbers have soared since October. Back in January, the new coronavirus had the potential for a global public health emergency that initially reminded us of the SARS outbreak in 2003. The World Health Organization had not yet declared a global health emergency, but the virus was a health threat in central China, where it first developed and had deadly results. It had also spread to other countries, most notably Italy. About two-thirds of the way through January, Libby Zneimer was joined to discuss the outbreak to that point by Dr. Jerome Lease, Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at Sunnybrook, and Dr. Susie Hota, Medical Director, Infection Prevention and Control Infectious Disease Specialist with the University Health Network. So coronaviruses are a family of respiratory viruses that um, can infect humans or animals. And there are a number of them out there. There are actually seven that can infect, infect humans. And that family does include some viruses such as SARS, which we are familiar with here in Canada, um, which can cause serious pneumonias. But other coronaviruses can cause symptoms that are actually very similar to the common cold. So runny nose, sore throat, cough, fever, that kind of thing. Dr. Lease, has it been verified yet whether this is a very, very serious virus or one of the lighter ones? I mean, six people have died, and I believe the count now is something over 250 cases. Uh, I'll just say that right now we're still learning about this particular virus. Um, It's still early and we're following it closely, but based on the numbers, the number of deaths that we've seen is actually lower uh, compared to SARS, and it seems to be that uh, this virus may not cause as serious an infection, but of course the situation uh, is still evolving and we're monitoring it closely. First of all, good news, China seems to be more open about owning up to this than they were in the SARS outbreak, right? Um, And I think that's an important key difference between what we faced during SARS and what we're facing now. Uh, We're we're getting the communications much more rapidly and more readily than uh, we did previously, um, you know, more than a decade ago. So that already puts us in a better position to prepare and understand the progress of what's going on. That said, early in any kind of new infectious disease that's emerging, there are a lot of uncertainties, like Dr. Lee had mentioned, and we do have to uh, be cautious about drawing conclusions while information still percolating in. Are we being hysterical about this because of our experience with SARS? You know, I certainly think that in uh, Toronto, that's very understandable. 
Um, but, but, you know, I, I think, yeah, I think we need to, uh, you know, reduce the level uh, of anxiety. We need to remember that this isn't 2003. There have been a lot of advances. Uh, as we're learning about this virus, uh, it really seems like uh, our usual practices should be, allow us to, uh, to, to pick up cases. And we have testing now available. And we have uh, a lot of practices in place to limit transmission, you know, in some of our healthcare institutions. And so, yeah, the, the message is, you know, uh, the, 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 the risk is very low. Uh, it's, the, the sky is not falling. Uh, and, you know, I, as I mentioned uh, before, you know, uh, it, it's interesting that a lot of uh, attention is, is being paid to this. And, you know, certainly it's evolving and there are changes. And so it's, it's appropriate. But let's not forget that, uh, you know, influenza kills, uh, you know, over 3,500 Canadians every season in a predictable fashion. And, uh, you know, in, in the general public, our vaccine rates uh, continue to hover around uh, 40%. And, you know, I think that's a failed opportunity given that we have something that can protect uh, Canadians from that infection, which is a, a far greater risk this time of year. Okay, I think that's a very good point. Uh, and Dr. Hoda, what else would you like to leave us with? I think I'd want to leave um, the audience with the knowledge that we are watching things very carefully and we're exercising a lot of vigilance. We're really trying to keep on top of what's happening throughout the world and locally um, and, you know, just kind of instill some confidence that there is a system in place to try and deal with this. Um, and so absolutely coming back to the last point and how uh, Dr. Lee said well articulated, um, you know, that the sky is not falling. There's no reason to panic, but we should be watching and cautious and uh, keep people informed. And that's why, you know, sessions like this are really important to me and to make sure that people are aware that there is there there are people who are uh, are watching this carefully and taking care of it. Dr. Susie Hota, Medical Director, Infection Prevention and Control, Infectious Disease Specialist with the University Health Network, and Dr. Jerome Lees, Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at Sunnybrook. Their conversation with Libby Zneimer back in January. This is the best of Fight Back 2020 on Zoomer Radio, a look back at the year of the pandemic. I'm Jane Brown. During the second week of February, Federal Health Minister Patty Haidu, Provincial Health Minister Christine Elliott, and Toronto Mayor John Tory joined together in Toronto to offer reassurance about the new coronavirus. They reiterated the risk associated with contracting it here at home was very low. But in China, the novel coronavirus passed a grim milestone of more than a thousand related deaths, surpassing the death toll of SARS back in 2003. We wondered here at home, with no new cases of what was now called COVID-19 and the number of people tested going down, if the biggest danger had passed for us in Toronto and Canada. Libby asked that question of Dr. Susie Hota at the University Health Network and Claudio Popa, cybersecurity expert with Data Risk Canada and author of the Canadian Cyber Fraud Handbook. Uh, I don't think we have enough information to say that it's peaked at this point in time. What we're doing is looking at how quickly the cases are rising within especially mainland China, where the vast majority of cases are occurring. And so numbers continue to go up. Overall confirmed reported case counts have been going up. 
Um, the rate of that going up seems to have slowed down a little bit day to day over the last week or so. However, there are many factors that go into play when you have to interpret that. Which areas are you referring to specifically? So, you know, the province within China called Hubei is where we still see the vast majority of cases. But throughout mainland China, we have uh, many areas, many provinces, many cities where there are a large number of cases. Um, there are about 25 different countries or jurisdictions that have cases reported as well. Uh, areas that I'm particularly interested in looking at is what's happening in Singapore, where there's been some transmission amongst clusters Dr. Hoda, is there anything you'd like to leave us with? I think that, you know, viewers should be aware that the public health officials and people in my position who do infection control in hospitals are, are very much on top of what's going on and looking for any signals for, you know, what we need to do to change how we're managing things. Um, but right now we have a pretty, pretty good handle on, on what to do uh, in our current situation in Canada. Yesterday, Finance Minister Bill Morneau warned that our economy will take a hit because of this. And now there appears to be a new cybersecurity threat spreading that's taking advantage of the public's fears around the virus. Cyber criminals are using coronavirus-themed emails in an effort to spread malware. And honestly, I just noticed one of these in my inbox just the other day. Let's go to Claudio Pupopa, cybersecurity expert with Data Risk Canada and author of the Canadian Cyber Fraud Handbook. Tell us about this new threat. Well, you know what? These things are typical. They, you can expect them. You can anticipate them. Anytime there's a noteworthy, newsworthy event, um, cyber criminals will take advantage of it. They will tap into people's fears. And they, all they have to do is literally change the subject line of their phishing emails. Once they do that, it'll get people's attention. It'll play on their fears. They'll click on it. They have tracking images in the emails that tell them where it was open from and when it was open so they know that you've already read it and they can send you follow-up emails. So it's, um, it's a little bit uh, irritating uh, to those of us who are trying to, to spread awareness, but it certainly has been anticipated. Is there anything else we should be on the lookout in terms of something that's a fallout from this coronavirus? Yes. The one thing you need to realize that is that they're, uh, they're aware, so cyber criminals are aware that you now know about phishing, that you know not to click on spam. So what they're doing is they're constantly scanning news sources and they're taking legitimate uh, summaries of news and plugging them into a spam engine that simply crafts emails based on content that has been published on, say, the BBC or CNN or CBC or, or whatever news source, right? So this will be crafted in perfect English, and it will carry with it a piece of software that will want to write itself uh, to your computer. So what you need to know is if you're not expecting that email, delete it. Claudio Popa, cybersecurity expert with Data Risk Canada and author of the Canadian Cyber Fraud Handbook. And before that, Dr. Susie Hota, Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at the University Health Network. Their conversation with Libby Snymer during the second week of February.
This is the best of Fight Back 2020 on Zoomer Radio, our coverage of the year of COVID-19. I'm Jane Brown. Developments around COVID-19 changed dramatically every day during the first two weeks of March. At that time, here in Toronto and across Ontario, the risk of contracting the new coronavirus was still low. And for most people who contracted it, the disease was mild. But we were seeing that elderly people with underlying health conditions were especially at risk. In fact, Canada's first COVID-19-related death was a man in his 80s at a long-term care home in North Vancouver. Some experts were calling for an end to visits to long-term care homes from the outside to reduce the risk of possible transmission. Others were saying this could make things worse since family members offer a lot of support for their elderly loved ones. Just days before the March lockdown, Libby Snymer spoke with a panel of experts, including Dr. Colin Furness, assistant professor in the Faculty of Information at the University of Toronto, who specializes in the risk that diseases pose to long-term care facilities, and Candice Chartier, former CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association. I really think that the homes are in a good position based on the pandemic planning that has been in place even um, with uh, the experience we went through with SARS. I think the biggest issues really are around um, just adhering to those policies and making sure that we have enough people on the floor to um, look after the, the fragile population that they're looking after. What are those policies for emergency preparedness? The biggest issue is making sure that um, the appropriate measures are being followed by staff. And I mean, if if I can say one thing out of this entire um, experience is washing your hands and not just washing your hands and running the soap over them. And you've got to wash your hands for 15 to 20 seconds. You've got to follow the the WHO, the World Health Organization guidelines. You've got to follow the respiratory etiquette, the environmental cleaning, the washing the hands before and after food prep, before and after eating, before and after toileting, coughing, sneezing in a tissue, um, using masks and gloves and soiled laundry. And there's so many protocols in place. Um, and you just have to ensure that the staff are following those protocols. So, Dr. Furness, there are some people who have said, okay, maybe we should stop people from visiting loved ones in nursing homes. Uh, you think that's a really bad idea? Well, I think it's it's a really complicated idea. It's easy to say we should practice social distancing and we should isolate people because we know that works. It works really, really well. And so for someone who's young and healthy and well-connected in their society, um, being forced to be alone or, or isolated, you know, it would be a drag. But when we think about this population um, of people who are particularly vulnerable, who already have, in many cases, not nearly as much social contact as we would like them to have, that, that I think, becomes, it becomes a risky proposition. I mean, we know that life expectancy for, for um, persons in, who are institutionalized is directly related to the kinds of social contact and agency that they have. This is, this is important. So I would, to the extent possible, would want, I, I, I think, people uh, who, are, who are institutionalized to still get visitors. I would would like the institutions to have personal protective equipment and to really, really be uh, very, very strict with protocols for visitors coming in. And that's that's not something that institutions easily can do. It's 
it's, it requires more resources, a lot more resources, and and so that that's difficult. But I would say that's what that's certainly what I would like to see. If you do live alone and you are feeling like this, or you know somebody that's feeling like this, that is a high risk population. Encourage them to have a buddy system, um, and encourage that buddy to check on you. Um, that that's really important, especially because a lot of the vulnerable population of seniors live alone. And, um, and I think it's really important to have someone that you can reach out to that is doing that check-in on you. That's a great point. Thank you for that, uh, Candice. Candice, you gave us a, a good a last piece of advice. Uh, Dr. Furness, anything from you? Everything that we're all doing in terms of protection and in terms of changing our habits and not shaking hands and coughing in our arms, we might all end up healthier in the long run. I would really like to see flu rates lower next year. I'd like to see this learning stick, and, and I'm hopeful that's the case. Dr. Colin Furness, Assistant Professor in the Faculty of Information at the University of Toronto, who specializes partly in the risk that diseases pose to long-term care facilities, and Candace Chartier, former CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association. This is the best of Fight Back 2020 on Zoomer Radio, a look back at the year of the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up next, COVID-19 becomes a crisis in long-term care. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. It was the best of times on the best of Fight Back for 2020 with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back to the best of Fight Back 2020, a look back at the year of the pandemic. We continue with our look at long-term care during the first wave of the COVID-19 crisis with the minister in charge. In mid-April, the Ford Progressive Conservatives at Queen's Park unveiled new measures to address the crisis in our long-term care homes. These included increased testing and forbidding staffers to work in more than one nursing home. But there were concerns that gaps and loopholes in those measures would allow the devastation to continue. And did it ever. The worst COVID-19 outbreaks in Ontario back in the early spring were at the Pinecrest Nursing Home in Bob Cajun, Seven Oaks in Scarborough, and Eatonville Care Centre in Etobicoke, to name a few. On April 16th, Libby Snymer spoke with Long-Term Care Minister Dr. Marilee Fullerton. Well, we're following the advice of the Chief Medical Officer of Health in terms of long-term care. There are situations where positive staff may be cohorted with a positive uh, resident, but um, that is the Chief Medical Officer of Health and Public Health um, that directs that. And how quickly are you going to expand the testing to asymptomatic staff? And that's a really important question because it's becoming increasingly clear through evidence Uh, surrounding COVID-19, that it is asymptomatic spread uh, that is in the community. And obviously, that's how it is getting into our our homes as well. So that's happening as we speak. There are um, uh, testing of asymptomatic residents and staff in, in selected homes all across Ontario to help public health and the chief medical officer of health understand the spread of this. 
Now, in terms of the compensation, so you've said that they will be able to have leaves of absence from their other jobs uh, while they're limited to working in only one home. But my understanding is that you're waiting on some kind of transfer from the federal government to top up their wages. So meantime, they're working on the front lines and very difficult jobs, and they've lost income. Well, there's many pieces to this, and we've we've really want to make sure that our frontline workers understand how much they're valued. And we've been putting measures in place to be able to address their wages and compensation. Um, There are a number of different issues surrounding that, and that takes time. We are not waiting on the federal compensation package, uh, although we do appreciate it, and it will be helpful. So are you going to compensate them? That is something that we are working on to address. We understand the issues Uh, during this pandemic. And uh, my heart goes out to every single one of the staff. And the majority of our homes are doing very well. We have a percentage that's in outbreak. Uh, Those staff are under extraordinary um, pressure. My heart goes out to them and everyone affected by this. When can they expect to hear something about their compensation? I would like it to have happened yesterday. The reality is that there are processes that we we have to go through. So no ETA? My hope is uh, urgently. That is what I'm actioning. That is what I'm pushing for. There are a number of processes that have to be adhered to. I understand the important work that they do. There was a report today, published report, that the number of deaths in long-term care is underreported by about 50%, that as of the writing of that report, there were actually 219 by a tally of the separate public health agencies versus what was reported, which was 144. There's a lag, and this has been um, really problematic the whole way through this. Public health units are on the ground. They begin the reporting of um, cases and deaths, and then there's several layers before it gets through to the Ministry of Long-Term Care. And and we're often seeing reports in the media and on television or through radio reporting before we um, have been able to confirm it. So there are numerous layers that have to go through public health and then to us. It has to be official. They have to be confirmed. But there is a lag. And are you trying to fix that, or is that just the way things are? Definitely, when, when working on that and the, and the gap is getting smaller, there is still some of the lag time. Ontario's Minister of Long-Term Care, Dr. Marilee Fullerton, with Libby Snymer back on April 16th. It's worth noting that Dr. Fullerton has turned down repeated requests since then to join Fight Back. She's on the record as saying some of our coverage of the COVID crisis and long-term care and her association with it was unfair. If you are a regular listener to Zoomer Radio, then you are aware of the campaign launched by CARP, calling for Premier Doug Ford to fire Marilee Fullerton from her post as long-term care minister for failing to protect nursing home residents during the second wave. To date, there have been thousands of signatures added to an online petition at carp.ca. This is the best of Fight Back 2020 on Zoomer Radio, the year of the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Jane Brown. It was an explosive report, an account by the Canadian military of abuse of residents in five Ontario long-term care homes during the pandemic. 
Released on May 26, the Armed Forces members detailed deplorable and disturbing situations. Residents being left in soiled diapers, aggressive feeding of residents leading to choking, residents calling for help unanswered for up to two hours, cockroaches and insect infestations, and rotten food, among other disgusting scenarios. So what would be done? Premier Doug Ford promised he would do everything in his power to correct this situation. On May 27th, Fight Back gathered a panel of experts to talk about the horrid situation, which did not come as a surprise to many who work in long-term care. Libby Snymer spoke with Graham Webb, Executive Director of the Advocacy Center for the Elderly, Lisa Levin, Chief Executive Officer of Advantage Ontario, and Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. One of the things I can say I was honestly shocked by, Libby, is the fact that in spite of the fact that the military was in these homes, there was still gross negligence and abuse that went on. And it was almost as if the staff there were impervious to the military even being there. And, you know, that just speaks to how, you know, devastated these these homes have been by COVID-19. Lisa, was there anything in there that surprised you? Well, I guess, Libby, that this report confirmed my worst fears. When we were hearing about stories in Italy and Quebec, And then I started getting calls from my members and hearing that some of them were down by 80% of their staff. I thought we need to get staff into these homes or else it's going to be really bad. It is shocking and very upsetting to read the report. But unfortunately, I'm not completely surprised. Graham? Uh, I've been uh, working since 1995 in this area. I'm familiar with uh, four of the five homes and I have worked on cases that have uh, this type of neglect and abuse or worse in these very homes. And so I'm not surprised. The only thing that surprises me is that uh, the military was there for only two weeks before they uh, they blew the top and said, uh, we got to report this. And also the uh, bluntness of the language and the detail of the the detail of the observations, and also with great gratitude that they didn't go through the normal channels. They went right through the military, and uh, it didn't get shoved under the rug. Well, yes, I was I was going to ask you that, uh, Graham, because uh, your colleague Jane Medes has said that if that report, she believes that if that report had been filed with the Ministry of Long-Term Care, we would never have found out about it. That's our belief, yes. Uh, we have reported things... Uh, uh, of abuse and neglect in long-term care homes, and we seldom see any uh, spotlight or action. And so um, I am always dismayed that we have these conditions in long-term care homes in Ontario. I grieve over what I read in this report, and at the same time, I'm relieved that there's now a large spotlight shining on this, because I think this is a moment for opportunity for change. What would you like to leave us with, starting with Marissa? 
you know, one thing that I've come to learn in this role is, you know, this is very personal for people. And, and we're talking about human beings. We're talking about moms and dads, brothers and sisters, grandmothers and grandfathers. And I think we've, we've lost sight. We've, re- we've in some ways reduced them to a statistic in some of the reporting. And, and we've lost sight of the fact that long-term care is someone's home. And it should be the kind of place that you would want to live in. And right now, a lot of these homes, they're simply not. Lisa. So uh, all I can say is that we need to change the system. We cannot wait any longer. We need to get more resources. And also we need to thank the staff that have stayed in the homes and worked through COVID-19. I mean, there are some horrible stories that we've been hearing, but there's also some amazing heroes, many, many amazing heroes. And shout out to them, to all the nurses, PSWs and frontline staff, uh, and management who have stuck it out in long-term care. Graham. This is something that affects everybody. Almost everyone knows someone in their circle of family or, or friends who has been affected by this particular crisis in long-term care homes. And this is not a COVID problem. This is a long-term care problem. COVID is the stress that has laid bare the problems and brought them to everyone's attention. Graham Webb, Executive Director of the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly, Lisa Levin, Chief Executive Officer of Advantage Ontario, and Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. This is the best of Fight Back 2020 on Zoomer Radio, a look back at the year of the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Jane Brown. In the summer, we were starting to hear about COVID fatigue. People were getting tired of adhering to all of the public guidelines to curb the spread of the virus. There was also an invincibility factor becoming evident among young adults and not just in Ontario. While filling in for Libby toward the end of July, I was joined to discuss a bump in COVID-19 cases by Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist and professor at the School of Public Health at Ryerson University, and Dr. Alon Vaisman, infectious diseases expert at the University Health Network. We have the fatigue in there as well. We also have this sort of water on a duck's back. In other words, they, they've heard it so many times. The media like you are doing an excellent job. There's people like uh, we are doing interviews every day. But it's going in one ear and out the other half the time. Uh, you know, the, the sun beckons, the beach party calls, uh, that great 2-4 of lager is waiting to be uh, shared around among friends. And we tend to forget, a little out of sight, out of mind, uh, the fact that there's a, there's a dangerous disease there. How can we impart that message to the younger people in our lives to make sure that they are observing physical distancing and washing their hands and belonging to one social circle and just generally being safe like they were a couple of months ago? It's an excellent question. Uh, One of the first principles I'd say is that it's important not to shame the younger people or blame the problem entirely on younger people as that is unlikely to motivate people to change their behavior as they feel that they're being targeted. Secondly, it's, uh, it's best to try to uh, use methods of communication that are most uh, easily accessible to young people, social media, social influencers, to try to inform them about the situation. It's true that people will get fatigued at this stage of the pandemic, having been uh, seven, eight months out now, and uh, people are getting tired of all the messaging. But I think uh, it's important now more than ever to normalize the behavior and to, to make people realize that this is uh, going to be what's necessary in the long term. But getting people used to that idea now is, is important. 
Maybe, Dr. Vaisman, it's it's the way the, of the messaging. So rather than don't do this and don't do that, uh, say you can still socialize, but you have to think about physical distancing. You can still get together with your friends, but you have to think about being apart two meters. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's really critical is that if we keep talking about restrictions and uh, restricting things, then people will inevitably find ways to get around it and you know, have meetings in rooms or parties or at homes where they're not going to be able to follow the rules. So if you provide people with alternatives on how to safely socialize, then they're more likely to follow it than simply saying no to everything. There's a lot of talk uh, about a second wave, a potential second wave. What leads to that, Dr. Sly? What would lead to a second wave of COVID-19 cases here in Ontario and in Canada? Well, people were for a number of months thinking about uh, the same model as influenza, but we've got really no evidence that this is seasonal at all. It's not an influenza virus, and it doesn't seem to behave like one. Instead, I think what we've got is what we must call a behavioral second wave. It's a second wave governed by people's actions, activities, and behaviors, and and the way it's going, it's not looking uh, very good at all. So the second wave is really behavioral, and therefore to reverse it back down again, it's we need to reverse those behaviors mm. and get this under check. Dr. Vaisman? The other important element is, uh, is importation of cases, that if you start to open the border, you might see cases coming in, and that will definitely influence a second wave. And as a result, the government has decided to keep delaying that decision to open the border up uh, because the control in the U.S. has, of course, not been nearly as good as it's been in Canada. So this decision is very important across the world because depending on where you are, you have to consider where your citizens are going to go and where people from uh, other parts of the world might come from to your country. So you might see cases where countries are kind of creating bubbles or expanding their bubbles slowly to be able to safely do this because um, there are continues to be hotspots in the world where a lot of cases continue to arise. And if you don't do a good job of uh, blocking that, uh, that transmission into your country, then you'll definitely see a second wave as a result of that. Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist and professor at the School of Public Health at Ryerson University, and Dr. Alon Vaisman, infectious diseases expert at the University Health Network, their conversation with me in July. This is Best of Fight Back 2020 on Zoomer Radio, the year of the pandemic. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up next, the inevitable second wave begins in Ontario. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back for 2020 with Jane Brown. Welcome back. This is the best of Fight Back 2020, a look back at the year of the COVID-19 pandemic. We received some unsettling news when it was announced the daily COVID-19 numbers in Ontario had jumped significantly on the Labor Day weekend to 190 on the Sunday and 185 on the holiday Monday. Canada's Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Theresa Tam, expressed her concern about the rising numbers, suggesting Canadians were not being vigilant enough. We wondered if this was the beginning of the so-called second wave. 
I asked that question of infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist Dr. Alon Baseman and Dr. Ray Dianandan, epidemiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. What we're seeing is the results of people being too social, and it's entirely in our power to get the numbers down again. Let's see if we can. This is about people interacting. There's no mystery here. The virus doesn't walk into your house on its own. It's carried by people. So the more that people interact, especially in large indoor gatherings, the more that we have people running inside because the weather gets bad, the more that we have institutions opening like schools, we're going to see an increase in numbers. So it's incumbent upon each of us to maintain these basic public health uh, restrictions like distancing and mask wearing and avoiding large gatherings. Dr. Vaisman, are you in agreement with that? Yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, when you think about what, uh, what's going on in Ontario, we're looking at phase three that was opened up around six weeks ago now. So we, what, what we might be seeing now is a downstream consequence of what happens when you open up in phase three. That doesn't mean that it was a foregone conclusion that we would have a rise in cases, but it could mean that there is a laxity in people's adherence to public health recommendations and also uh, People are, as, as was mentioned, now it's getting a little bit cooler. People are now going to be more indoors as schools are opening up. So these are things that are going to collide and potentially lead to a, a surge in cases in the near future. Well, in terms of why we went to phase three, as you mentioned, about six weeks ago, um, you know, you wonder, we needed to do that for the economy. But at the same time, if the result is that people get more relaxed, we're, we really are not fighting the virus as effectively as we could have, Dr. Ray, had we stayed in phase two. I don't think we could have stayed in phase two. I don't think the population would have tolerated it as well. Opening up when it was safe to do so, like in the hot summer months when people have the opportunity to go outside was important. It also gave us an opportunity to try out some things, to test out some theories and hypotheses. I don't, I don't think we use that opportunity as much as we should have, especially around how to deploy uh, resources around school openings. We could have tried out some things in summer camps. We didn't do that. But that was the time to do it. So I'm glad that we took that chance. Now I hope that we roll back some aspects of that plan, in particular bars and nightclubs, uh, places where really social interaction is a luxury, not a necessity, because everything matters now. We have to keep the economy open, which means making some tough choices going forward. Dr. Vaisman, perhaps um, as Dr. Dianandan is suggesting, the guidelines aren't restrictive enough with in terms of bars and gyms and weddings and whether they're indoors or outdoors. Is it time to pull back a little bit? Yeah, that's exactly how we should be approaching the problem is that when we went from lockdown towards relaxing restrictions, they went in the phase approach of one, two, three. And now that the cases are rising again, there's going to have to be a decision made about when you pull that trigger and then go backwards on the phases again. And I think the important thing for the public to realize is that this is going to be a dynamic approach. Uh, it's going to come and go. We're going to have to relax and then restrict so that we uh, do our best to protect the public. So if the cases do continue to rise in the, very, in the near future, then that trigger is going to have to be pulled and we're going to have to restrict some of those social activities. Um, but still with the messaging being important about this is, uh, this is what we have to do in the short term to protect people in the long term and that it'll be a constantly, uh, it'll be a situation that's in constant flex. We'll have to go backwards and forwards with this to make sure everyone's safe.
Infectious Diseases Specialist and Epidemiologist Dr. Alon Vaisman and Dr. Ray Dianandan, Epidemiologist and Associate Professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. Their conversation with Fight Back in the days after the Labor Day weekend. This was also a time of great concern around back to school as students in Ontario began heading to class for the first time since March break. Would the protocols be enough to protect students and staff from contracting the virus? This is a question that is still being asked with schools closed for the winter break. Experts and political leaders have continued to say the rate of transmission in the schools is less than in the community, and it's important for the mental well-being of students to be with their peers with all public health protocols in place. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back 2020, a look back at the year of COVID-19. I'm Jane Brown. During the first week of October, we learned of an unsettling change in COVID-19 contact tracing protocol. Toronto Public Health staff were only getting in touch with contacts of infected people who contracted COVID-19 in high-risk settings. Otherwise, infected individuals were responsible for letting their contacts know they had contracted the virus. At the same time, the number of daily tests was increased dramatically, but with a huge backlog in getting results. Libby Snymer spoke to these issues on October 5th with Dr. Matthew Miller, infectious disease expert at McMaster University in Hamilton, and Dr. Andrew Morris, infectious disease specialist at Sinai Health System and University Health Network in Toronto. At least in the greater Toronto area, we have a pretty substantial rise in cases. Um, It's to the point where it's overwhelmed our testing system's capacity, and it's now overwhelmed our public health response capacity in terms of being able to contact, trace, and then get those contacts to self-monitor, isolate, and possibly even get tested. Dr. Miller. The turnaround time in in testing is a major ongoing concern, and and the implications of that, I think, have have been exacerbated by um, return to school and children who experience symptoms uh, and and then need to uh, have coronavirus testing before returning to school um, are also experiencing major delays, which has knock-on effects for their parents and caregivers, of course. And so, it's it's uh, it's really essential that the that the turnaround time for these tests be be much much better than than what we're currently experiencing. Doctor Morris, is that something that's doable? Is it just a money issue that may be fixed if the money flows? I think now the challenge we have is um, there are many factors involved in having these tests get performed. So there are many steps along the way that are creating challenges for being able to ramp this up. I understand we'll be able to ramp up substantially over the next few weeks. But as you can probably gather, every day that we don't have increased capacity, uh, we're falling further behind. We've moved into a stage where for the foreseeable future, I think it's very unlikely, um, given the daily increases in cases, that that public health is going to be able to return to the type of detailed contact tracing that was possible when case numbers were low. And so as a consequence of that, in order to get things back under control, it's going to require a massively disciplined, concerted public effort to, you know, 
put our mindsets back to where we were in the spring, where we were really limiting uh, our social contacts, um, our trips outside of the home, uh, in, in order to you know, stem ongoing transmission. Um, I think one one really useful thing that that people should be encouraged to do uh, where possible is to download uh, the COVID tracing app that the government uh, has put out because at least that's one way um, to be able to disseminate warnings of, of potential exposures in the absence of public health directed contact tracing. In terms of um, the second wave, let's just get a sense: where are we at? Are we are we at the beginning of it? And and do you anticipate that it's just going to build? Uh, I, I think that that there's no question that we're we're in the midst of the second wave, and given the fact that there there haven't been there hasn't been much yet in the way of of meaningful. Um, increases in restrictions uh it's it's only going to grow for for the foreseeable future as you know we we have a two-week delay um between any interventions and seeing changes in cases and so you know we should expect to see many more weeks of increase uh which will inevitably make this surpass the first wave in terms of um the numbers of detected cases. And so um, it's, it's going to be, I think, uh, a challenging um, few months. Dr. Matthew Miller, infectious disease expert at McMaster University in Hamilton, and Dr. Andrew Morris, infectious diseases specialist at Sinai Health System and University Health Network in Toronto. They were in conversation with Libby Snymer on October 5th. This is Zoomer Radio's Best to Fight Back 2020, a look back at the year of the pandemic. I'm Jane Brown. The fall of 2020 would bring growing daily COVID-19 numbers in Ontario. On many days, around 2,000, with both Toronto and Peel region leading the way. Toronto and Peel were put on lockdown November 23rd. York region and Windsor-Essex followed soon after. Our public health experts and political leaders blamed the rising numbers on a lack of commitment from all residents in this province to socialize only within their household, physical distance from others, and stay masked while inside when away from home. But there were also moments of promise as the first COVID-19 vaccine was approved in the UK and then a short time later in Canada and the U.S., While filling in for Libby, I spoke with a panel of experts on the day the first Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines were given in Canada on Monday, December 14th. Here in Toronto at University Health Network, it was a personal support worker who got the first shot in Ontario. While in Quebec, it was an 89-year-old nursing home resident, symbolic for the devastation the virus has caused in long-term care. Joining us on V-Day, Vaccine Day in Ontario, Mark Lavonin, co-chair of Canada's COVID-19 Vaccine Task Force, epidemiologist Dr. Timothy Sly, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University, and epidemiologist and infectious disease specialist Dr. Alon Vaisman from University Health Network. What is going on is that UHN has affiliations with uh, long-term care facilities here in Toronto. So those individuals uh, are going to be the first ones who receive it, And of course, that's because there is a greater risk of transmission in long-term care facilities. 
And of course, trans, uh, vaccinating the healthcare workers working with them will reduce that risk. Dr. Sly, how effective, in your opinion, will it be having the long-term care workers vaccinated initially, in, in, vaccinated first? Well, of course, these decisions are made on a risk basis. Uh, we're looking at, uh, from a society point of view, where can the vaccines produce the best results? The best result here being protection of the society itself, as well as protecting of the individuals. Uh, it's um, the the uh, the staff in long-term care homes and the hospitals, of course, have been the, the number one uh, on the list for virtually. Any, but after we get to that point, then we've got to start thinking about whether uh, it's better to look at public interface people who would be spreading it more. Uh, you know, taxi drivers, uh, uh, um, the people working in 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 all kinds of industries where they're meeting up with the public, or whether it's uh, we should start cascading down from. Uh, um, the actual individuals themselves, so people in in ordinary hospital settings, people in the uh, clinics, and so on. It's a it's a it's a it's there's no clear indication. We haven't really done this kind of process before, where time is limited. But uh, it's a risk based uh, decision. Uh, Mark Lavonin, uh, from the national perspective, do you give orders, or will orders go down to the provinces as to uh, which sectors of the population should be vaccinated in priority order, or is that left up to the provinces? So uh, the vaccine task force, which I'm co-chairing, um, our, our job was to secure safe and efficacious vaccines for Canadians as soon as possible. So we have come up with the recommendations to the government to buy the seven uh, vaccines that they've entered into agreements for, of which the, the Pfizer, BioNTech, and the Moderna are the first two. And so it's wonderful to see that rolled out. In terms of providing advice on who should get what vaccines when, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization comes up with uh, prioritization and recommendations. Um, the Public Health Canada works on the distribution and the rollout. And then the provinces are also involved with the distribution within the provinces and the territories. And at that stage, they will also refine those recommendations based on their own populations. So there's a number of people involved. But I think it's quite remarkable how quickly this is underway and how quickly we see the first uh, person vaccinated. Final reactions on day one of vaccine inoculation against COVID-19. Dr. Sly? One thing that really worries me is that while we're all full of hope and seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, is that we start letting our guards down, uh, and and that will be a problem. There won't be any major concern, major difference here, other than the, to the individuals themselves who are vaccinated, but to society itself, uh, we need to keep all of those guards up for many months yet. This is too soon to, uh, to relax. Mark Lavonin. Uh, my thoughts are very similar as we've been doing, saying from the beginning, wash your hands a lot, social distance. And when you can't social distance or when you're in public places, wear a mask. And Dr. Vaisman. Absolutely. I agree with Dr. Sly's comments. This is not the end quite yet. We need to continue doing everything we know that's right and to prevent the disease from transmitting. Epidemiologist and infectious diseases specialist Dr. Alon Baseman from University Health Network, Mark Lavonin, co-chair of Canada's COVID-19 Vaccine Task Force, and epidemiologist Dr. Timothy Sly, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. That was day one of a long journey ahead when hopefully by this time next year, the vast majority of Canadians will have been vaccinated against COVID-19. 
I'm Jane Brown, and this has been Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back 2020. We hope you've enjoyed this look back at the year that has really been like no other. Be sure to join me for a brand new fight back tomorrow after the new news. And coming up this Friday, New Year's Day, you are the star of the show. We've chosen the best calls of 2020 and put them all together in a special best of free for all Friday. Please join me for this special look back at what you had to say during the year that was. You've been listening to the best of Fight Back for 2020 with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Produced for MZ Media Limited by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi. With technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.